Essentially, uh, what I gathered from the overall purport of the, the talk that uh, there is no scriptural or conceptual, Indic conceptual uh, deterrent for Kurt Yudha. And still, we have Kurt Yudha covert operations, etc. But we have somehow trapped ourselves into some kind of a morality which is alien to our nature perhaps. And because of that, we are having all kind of policy as well as initiative paralysis. And uh, this is potential, it has hurt us in past and it is continuing to hurt us. So I would ask you, I mean essentially, how, how has it got introduced into uh, our uh, minds and uh, culture. Well, there's one word for it, really. Uh, the entire hoax that we, I mean, I, this is, you go into history, and I, I, uh, I urge you to read uh, my first book. It's a very fat book. It's called Nuclear Weapons and Indian Security. Macmillan published it. It's now in its second edition. Uh, my first chapter is on precisely ancient statecraft and its relevance to modern times, how Nehru built it up, and etc. But also the notion of Gandhian pacifism. Ahimsa is, by the way, completely alien to India. This is amongst the bloodiest societies in the world, most violent societies. You know that, open a newspaper thing, you know, someone is killing, you know, people are being lynched and it's uh, just maramari all around. Vedas say, they say, force is the last resort after you have used everything. But when you use force, use it absolutely to destroy the state, adversary. See, that's lo usually lost sight of. Samadhan Bheda and all this stuff is fine, but even there, you have to begin to use it to your advantage. Now, if I were to, there has to be an objective to your Kutiyudha, like all intelligence ops. What is your objective? What's your meta objective? Not the immediate objective of getting something small done here or there. What's the meta objective in mind? Now, I think of it. Meta objective is not to dismantle the Pakistani state. I've been arguing for 30 odd years in all my books is if Pakistan did not exist, we'd have to invent it for our own benefit. Think of it. I wish there were a you know map here. Think. Why? Because it's a cordon sanitaire, a buffer state for all the awful extremist Islamic influences coming in from the West. It's a buffer state, which Pakistan is now suffering. Can you imagine if there was no border now and we were on the um, uh, Durand, you know, the, not the, the Durand line, no. Durand line, yes. And we have a right there on the Wakhan corridor. Right now, with everything ha happening, now, just this is a mind experiment. Think of it. Of, not unpartitioned India. We'd have a hell of a time if everything else had happened the same way. But India was non-partitioned. My God, this would have been a recipe for perennial civil war. Is it not? It's a good thing to have happened that the Muslim community, I'm sorry to say, got partitioned into three parts. Otherwise, it was a recipe for perennial civil war. People don't realize that. And therefore, it's in our interest to build up, ensure Pakistan is secure, prosperous. Will it always be a buffer state, a strategic buffer? And it can be easily co-opted. What did you say of Bikau? We have more money than Pakistanis. We can buy them off. 
Oh, by the way, I won't say here all our successes, but we have had great successes in simply buying off a lot of Pakistani elite. Just so you know, we use the dhana part very well. We have done so with considerable success in Pakistan. At the highest levels, incidentally. Pakistan can be easily co-opted, which is the right thing to do, to regain the strategic unitary space that we lost in 47, the economic strategic economic. unitary space, not the political. And I've said therefore that we have to begin to earn, and this is not obviously a message that is accepted by people here for obvious reasons or by the government, but I've said that we have to take unilateral steps to generate trust of the Pakistanis in us. How can we do that? We have three strike cores. You know what three strike cores is? I mean, people have no understanding. I've been in, in a divisional exercise. You know, you have the army uh, exercises, war exercises. When you have just 500 tanks rolling at battle speeds, what they call battle speed. You know, the earth shakes. You know, you literally can't think I mean, inside a tank when you're ruling. You know, your brains are all scrambled. You know, I, I, you know everything is rattling and you know, I mean, it's enormous decibel uh, impact on your ears. Your, your nerves are short. You can't keep your head straight. You're looking at, if you're a gunner, you're looking at the eyeball, the ball on the thing where you have to get your targeting sights. It's so damn difficult to run a tank. Of course, modern tanks are much more easier to do, but we have still older tanks. I mean, and then you're running at speeds where there are 500 such tanks, your earth shakes, you know, dust is all over the place, you're inhaling dust. I mean, it's a mess. Armored warfare, Romel Guderian. One man's time. I've said demobilize the two strike corps into one strike, one composite core. So for any Pakistani contingency and use the man and material resources freed up by demobilizing two strike corps, two offensive mountain corps against China. Use light tanks with high torque engines that fire immediately against in the Tibetan plateau, the higher plateau, 14,000 feet. Do you know we have our T-72s in the Sikkim northern plains to debouch onto the Tibetan plateau? The 33 core commanders have repeatedly told me, Bharat, we have a real mess. <laughs> Why? Because it's so cold up there, the tanks don't start. And do you think the Chinese are going to wait around for you, for your tanks to start before they're fighting with you? Okay, okay, you know, we'll not do anything. You begin your tank, you know, start your tanks. It's so cold, the oil freezes in the tank. The lubricants have a problem. They heat up, do all kinds of techniques to get the tanks running. 40% at any given time. Uh, the tanks don't work at that heights. We have to have light tanks. And there's one thing, our great army, which doesn't give, as I said, the reason I don't think highly of the army is that they left their brains behind. When I say this to the military audience, they naturally don't like it. That's what I write in my books. If you have, if the cavalry regiments here, the armor regiments are very strong, bureaucratically very strong. And they don't want their turf to be 
लेसन बाई दो स्ट्राइक और उड़ा दोगे हम क्या करेंगे फिर ट्विडला थम्स वो कहते हैं पाकिस्तानी एक तो तुम्हें चाहिए होगा फॉर कंटीजेंसी पर्पसेस द अदर थिंग आई सेड इट टू एन यू डू इट यूनिलैटरली डोंट आस्क रेसिप्रिकल थिंग्स ऑफ द पाकिस्तानी बिकॉज यू डोंट आस्क फॉर रेसिप्रिकल थिंग्स ऑफ चाइना दिस द रियल स्ट्रेंज एंड शेमफुल थिंग चाइना तो जो मर्जी वो करते रहे वी डोंट आस्क फॉर रेसिप्रोसिटी बट पाकिस्तान एक इंच दे दिया हमें और दो इंच दे देना नॉनसेंस यू नो आई डोंट अंडरस्टैंड दैट दैट्स नॉट स्ट्रेटेजिक थिंकिंग that's tactical thinking so, so we are sometimes good at tactics we are not good at strategy that's been my basic theme really that we are good at maybe good at tactics we are not good at strategic thinking strategy is something big so uh, can't we use hong kong along with taiwan so can't we use hong kong along with taiwan to tackle china no hong kong is a different thing why because hong kong has already gone into china's grasp and you know uh why the hong kong agreement 99 year lease agreement with the british that's over so it's a one china two systems is taiwan what we should say is one china three systems mainland tibet because why are we not fighting for a oh, by the way yeah that's the other thing with china why are we not using the the uh, tibet card it's there for it to be used but we are frightened to use it we are always very frightened to do everything tibet is there to be milked universally there's a cultural genocide happening in tibet when i go to i have addressed the the kashag kashag is the parliament of the tibetan people government in exile in dharamshala and young mps tibetan mps come up and say sir the indian government is not helping us train us give us military arms and equipment we'll fight our cadres will fight we won't give it even as the chinese are helping the northeastern rebels by the way the naga rebels the manipuri rebels helped by china and yet you're doing nothing you don't even reciprocate against the chinese tit for tat americans are doing same thing to us yeah. i mean chinese are doing same thing to us i mean we are uh, the regular yeah. but what is this paralysis i mean we understand that probably 1000 years of slavery has put us in this kind of main uh, mind frame that we don't really probably want to come out of it i mean vietnamese are ready to help us taiwanese are ready to help us tibetans are ready to help us forget about we are trying to extrapolate it to china but even with pakistan we no. can't take small small decisions no why we don't i don't know so so what is the way out of it i mean yeah. there has to be a way out of it well, otherwise you see and i tell you what just get basically i'd hoped that the modi government and i let me be very no. frank had hoped but, it would be you know i'm before uh, ye jo aapne india first that modi slogan no? first. india first okay india first okay okay india first slogan india first concept by the way 
uh, I conceived it first in 2001, 2002, in my writings, which is what the BJP ran with in the manifesto. I helped them, uh, you know, draft certain sections, etc. Uh, Manohar Joshi was the head of the foreign policy unit, BJP, and so on. They went with the manifesto, etc. And we, I had great hopes. I had great hopes the first Modi government would, you know, do all these things. Bring in some self-respect into our policy. you know, because the Prime Minister is convinced that we have to get closer to America and so on. Jayashankar, by the way, is, you know, I mean, I'm, I've known his father was my colleague in the NSAB, Subramaniam. I respected him hugely. But again, he turned. And these are people who, in some sense, I find it ironic. I lived a third of my life in America and I'm, think I'm very critical of the Americans. Well, I understand their weaknesses, but I understand the strengths of their approach and what they have to sell and how easily they can tempt Indians and third world people. Now, I'm sorry to say this is absolutely the fact that they use as a raison d'estate, like raison d'estate, that the reason of state, any of these devices are used as reason of state. That's by the way, uh, Indian embassy among is perhaps the only embassy in the world that can issue a permanent immigrant visa to one Indian national every year. This is not, I'm just telling you something. Only one, they can issue one or two, whatever. The Indian, the American ambassador can decide to bestow American citizenship, not just green card, instantly make you an American citizen has the power. And do you know how many of our generals and our secretaries to the government line up to become, get that one or two things? You will be surprised. You will be absolutely astonished. And all you have to do on some March evening, on a certain day, they have a dinner there for, you know, our so-called uh, elite. Who are there? Who are seeking, who pitched? how helpful they'll be, they have been uh, to the US in their careers and how much more helpful they'll be after they retire. This is the sort of thing happening right now in Delhi. Sir, uh, so uh, security studies, why do not we have that larger vision and that incorporated into our academia? I mean, was it always part of a conspiracy? I'm a student of international political economy and a historian myself. Uh, with some sort of international experience and very deep interest into security studies and that is what my analysis is and I see it as part of a larger conspiracy. What is your opinion on that? Yes, no absolutely. I, I think the reason is um, and I, I think it's very necessary now to have compulsory military service. Certainly for all people joining government services. It has been uh, broached now by Brigadier Gurmeet Kanwal. But this has been there when I was in the Finance Commission. That's what I wrote up in my classified report to the Narasimha Rao government. I said we have to have military service. We have to have a straightforward recruiting procedure where military service becomes the, the basis for entry into all government services, including the Central Secretariat staff, whatever. Everybody has to go through military service, like in Israel like in China until a few years back, like in Taiwan now, or maybe you will say that they are small states, but we are inherently such an undisciplined people, if I may say so, that what happens is unless someone 
You learn to be disciplined. You learn to think as a unitary state with interests. It doesn't mean that just because you pull time in military, you'll become that. But it'll help you towards that. It helps you towards that. And the other thing is, or if you don't want to be, if you're a pacifist or something, then you uh, do some government social work, like Peace Corps, that the Americans have a very good notion they had. Again, they have given up and they are finding all kinds of difficulties now. We have to do something. Not one, uh, to answer your direct question, uh, I was on the, I don't know how and why, they put me on the I was a member of the academic senate or something, JNU. Uh, I was completely surprised. They said, sir, you know, join us and you have been nominated or something. Sometime many years back. And I said, what is your syllabi? I'm, I'm a right or center conservative, ideologically. I'm an Edmund Burke conservative. Edmund Burke is not even taught, as far as I know, in JNU. And I was so impressed as an undergraduate in California with Edmund Burke. I've ever since been an Edmund Burkean conservative. What does Edmund Burke mean? You are socially conservative, of course, which we all are, which conforms nicely with our predilections. But what it also says is that government is not the answer for anything. That's why when Modi said minimum government, maximum governance, I believed him, as did many others, I'm sure. Anytime the role of government comes in, it's the dead hand of government. We have been led to believe in the Maibab Sarkar. Sarkar is not, never Maibab, it's always oppressive. Always oppressive. Nowhere in the history of humankind has a state been benign. Never. No matter how well-intentioned you start out with. Like the Leninist state, the new economic policy of Lenin, 1921. Extraordinary effulgence of vigor that was let loose, imagination, wit by Lenin. But very soon after Lenin, Stalin came in. And Stalin's state was the worst you could imagine. Who was Edmund Burke? He's the one who, by the way, uh, led in the House of Lords, the indictment of Cornwallis for in, you know, enriching himself at India's expense. Do you know that? That's Edmund Burke. Wherein he said, most people who are in government are in government, I'm saying, I'm paraphrasing what, uh, you know, his essence, is essentially they do it for their own good, for their own interest, not for the betterment of the common weal. That's Edmund Birkin conservatism. I'm an Edmund Birkin conservative. I don't want the government in my life. With government in our life, they'll tell you what to do, what not to do, how to do, what to do. Exactly. George Orwell, 1984. Is that right? Look at how the state has grown in India. And when Modi said, we'll cut down state, I believed him. But now he's bringing the apparatchiks of state into cabinet ministers, where they all take orders from him. Uh, hi, sir. Uh, I have three questions to ask. First one is on your interaction with Hamid Gul and your comment on P Indian Islam. 
Indian Islam that it is not Wahhabi influenced. But don't you think India's bifurcation then is basically an ideological problem? If not, second one in your recent book you were talking. I read a review that uh, about mod modified quad, mod quad, anti-US stance of India. So you have elaborated how we can leverage um, Taiwan against China. Please, you might want to elaborate on yeah, how, okay. what we actually have against the US. And the third question is about the democracy challenge you you really posed. Every five year, a government changes. So why should a government not focus on getting itself re-elected again against thinking in a long term, 30 years or 40 years? Exactly. So the democracy challenge. These yes. three questions. No, Thank absolutely. You. But I said that's the. That's the problem with democracies, that we are forced into a five-year, four-year, whatever. In America, it's four years. Here, it's five-year window, policy window. But that's your, you know, naturally, I want to get elected. Perfectly understandable, by the way. I'm not saying anything. I said this is the weakness of democracy, which doesn't mean I don't want democracy. I want democracy. But when you add democracy to a very strong state, then you have makings of an authoritarian state where the individual rights and liberties are then, shall we say, impacted negatively. How do you address this problem? No, well, you tell me, you know, I mean, I mean, no, but the other, the, the, by the way, in the, uh, thank you for bringing out my solution. Look, America is entirely untrustworthy as a partner, entirely. It is going to further its own ends. It's not your friend. America is its own best friend. It has no good friends. And that's true of all great powers. That's not just, that was Pax Britannica, British did the same. America is doing the same now. When China becomes the dominant power, predominant power, it'll do the same. It has always done it. But in this case, you have the, uh, what I've suggested is, how do we get out of relying on America, which is inherently unreliable? And I've said, okay, there are two obvious groups. One is the BRICS. It's an economic grouping, as you know, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa. I said, what we have to do is, realize a, a, an, an architecture, security architecture, in which you sideline China and you sideline the US. In relative terms, that helps India become bigger. I'm worried about how to get India up. I'm not worried about anything else. This is a design I have mooted and proposed. In BRICS, in BRICS you cut out China, have a loser security coalition, loose one, not like NATO or institutionalized one, but loose military cooperation agreements between Brazil, Russia, India and South Africa. No China. Bris. Look at what it does. I wish again that there was a map of the world. Atlantic Ocean, Brazil, Simonstown, South Africa, India, the peninsula mass into this Indian Ocean. What is India's peninsula mass like? Isn't it like the prow of an aircraft carrier jetting out into the Indian Ocean? Yeah, that's, that's the geography. You have to have basic Halford Mackinder, the great geopolitical strategist and theoretician, the pioneer, said that all statesmen 
have to have a map reading habit of mind. You have to be able to read a map. That's what I said earlier about Hitler, Lebensraum. He understood. Haushofer, Hans Haushofer, is Halford Mackinder saying all statesmen have to have a map reading habit of mind. You have to be able to read maps. And so if you did that, you'd straight away know Bris, Brazil would control the eastern seaboard, Atlantic. See how it connects up. Simonstown is the South African naval base at the tip near Cape of Good Hope. So the conjoined navies of India, Brazil and South Asia can, when because America is not going to come to anybody's rescue, you cannot rely on it. It may have 12 aircraft carrier groups and more and more, it can't even afford those aircraft carrier groups. When you don't have the aircraft carrier groups, and how are you going to deploy them? They're going to deploy it against China in the East Sea, not in the Indian Ocean against to help you against China. So we have to use our own resources. With Brazil and so on, you're you know, pretty much commanding and controlling the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean convergences. India is there with land-based air, because think of India as an air base jutting out into the Indian Ocean, which it is. With naval aviation, land-based air, not naval aviation. Naval aviation is aircraft carriers. Here, land-based air, we can control the choke points. Simonstown, Gulf of Aden, Malacca Straits, Sunda Straits, Lombok Strait. We can control it. And the Chinese know it. A Chinese analyst has called that one of our biggest problems, he said, is India bringing down what they call the steel curtain on Malacca. It's exactly right. They're realists. The Chinese are realists, always. They read the maps. You have to be able to read a map. The basic requirement of a policy maker is to be able to read a map. If you can't read a map, is why we get into all the problems we have been getting into for the last 70 years. Because none of our people, our prime ministers, have had this, have been able to read maps, which basically means having a basic understanding of military geography. What geographic terrain can help what military causes and what capabilities are required to do that. That's what map reading habit of mind means. When you have that, then you can understand. Okay, that's BRIS. You cut out China there. Then you have the quadrilateral that everybody's talking about, right? Where the US imposes itself. It's an extraterritorial power. But it says, oh, we are in the Indo-Pacific. They have sold us a bill of goods, saying, yes, we are Indo-Pacific power. And we are like fools saying, ah, bother chai, bother chai, you know. The fact of the matter is, if you have the quadrilateral America, Japan, Australia, India, the weak point is the United States, because it's an extraterritorial power. It will come in only when its own interests are served in a crisis or a confrontation. It's not going to come to your aid if Singapore suddenly gets into a problem with China or India gets into a problem with China. It's not going to do that. And therefore, cut out, I've said, America from have a loser coalition of modified quad. Meaning instead of America, you have Japan, Australia. Again, Australia is an American camp follower even more than we are. 
we're getting to be in Australia very soon. I'm telling you, we're getting into that. Well, Australia is distancing itself. We are getting closer into America's lap. Not bad, but it's going to have costs when you do these kinds of things. So Australia, Japan, now think again geographically, always geographically, when you think of international relations. What is the coalition? And this, I said, my first book that ever published, Future Imperiled, India's Security in the 1990s and Beyond. This was a 1994 book, it's out of print, Viking Penguin. But I said then, the basic architecture is for India to be the pivot, pivotal power in the Indian Ocean, with the two ends anchored in Israel and Japan. We are reaching it. This is the thing I enunciated at great length in my classified report to the Finance Commission. I made it a, out a reasonable and adaptable force structure for such a contingency to service this kind of an architecture. So the modified quadrilateral is mod quad, I called it, mod quad. And instead of America, you have ASEAN states who are very rich, who are very capable, by the way. And the important thing in each of this, as I have said, is that each of these conglomerations are multi-trillion dollar economies on their own. Think of BRIS. Other than South Africa, the rest are all trillion dollar economies. Consider Motquad. Every one of them, the ASEAN states, not all ASEAN states, not Laos, Cambodia, which are very poor, but Singapore, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, you know, these become then part of the security coalition. We are already in uh, Indonesia, we are already in Vietnam, but we are not putting our forces there, which is what we should do, I've argued. Our naval flotilla shouldn't be in Andaman Fortress Command. Our naval forces should be on the other side of Malacca. Because you always deal with an enemy at a distance, never nearer to you, never nearer home, not at your doorstep. Deal with the enemy at great distances. That gives you the time and the distance in case things go wrong in the first line of defense to manage your own security. So I've talked about these two coalitions of security, BRIS and Modquad. National interest is secular. National interest is secular. There's no such thing as national interest being Hindu or Muslim or anything like that, for God's sake. You know, national interest is secular. India's interest. It, all national interests are secular. What do we want? We want a pacified neighborhood for a start. If you want a pacified neighborhood, which is what is the basic first step to becoming a great power, is your neighborhood has to be supportive and has to be pacified. Our own neighborhood, not one country on adjoining you is friendly to you. Not one country. You have alienated Nepal, Sri Lanka, Maldives until Soli came in. Pakistan to hai aapka great dushman. Bhutan aapka regya. Awobi, they are making their own independent, uh, you know, approaches to China, by the way. And you'll be surprised one of these days what's going to happen. So you can't manage your own neighborhood and you want to be a great power, you know, consorting with China, America and the great powers there. Are kya? You know, manage your own damn neighborhood first. You're not able to do that. You have to win them over by being generous. Who can resist if all these countries are offered open access to the Indian market? Please tell me. 
and we help them with credit lines. Okay, please, you have open access to India, to Pakistan, we can win them over tomorrow. If they have access to the Indian market, you can run coal fields, uh, you know, coal from the Jharia coal fields in Bihar right into the Karachi factories. Do you think they'll have to import coal from Australia, New South Wales? And pay 10 to 12 times as much money, and they, which they don't have? Look at the advantages we have, we don't use. 